Welcome to Office Hours with John Gardner. The John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education strives to advance higher education's larger goal of achieving equity and social justice. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is John Gardner, and welcome to our latest edition of Office Hours with uh, yours truly. And today I am delighted to introduce you to William Bill Moses, who uh, has a very different, I think you'll find in some ways, but maybe others in some similar fashion, take on what we're all seeking here on our journey for individual truths about innovation in American and more broadly, higher education globally. And uh, this gentleman works for a major American foundation. He's the senior higher education grants officer with the Kresge Foundation. He has a long history, as does the foundation, of investing in higher education innovation. So, Bill, um, I've done your work, and I've learned a lot from you, and it's a pleasure I'm going to learn from you in this conversation. Thank you for being with us today. Um, I'd like to uh, give you an opportunity, please, to you know, just start us with um, some highlights um, about your own unique individual professional life journey with respect to innovation in higher education. Take it away. Well, thanks, John. It's great to be with you. Um, well, you know, part of the way I ended up in this work, you know, foundation work is not one of those kinds of careers where you do a, a management training program after college and then you do, or you go to the Peace Corps or you go to Teach for America or something like that, where there's a clear path to the next role. And um, I uh, used to work basically in the anti-apartheid field. And uh, as you may have heard, we won. Nelson Mandela became president. South Africa became a democracy. And um, I ended up working at another foundation called the Watson Foundation, which worked with small liberal arts colleges around the United States and provides a year of a wanderjahr to travel anywhere in the world, studying whatever you want uh, for a year. And all the recipients come from small liberal arts colleges. And I was... Um, uh, a recipient of that work or that uh, fellowship uh, coming out of undergraduate school and went to South Africa. And every two years in those days, they got a new executive director. So I got that job and I was there for two years and I just applied to a whole bunch of foundations and Kresge hired me. And for the first several years, Kresge for decades had only done capital projects and capital projects for colleges and for hospitals and for performing arts centers and museums and homeless shelters and any kind of nonprofit you can imagine, except for houses of worship and community colleges, actually. And so I worked there and we got a new president in about 2006. And um, he really completely remade the foundation. His name is Rip Rapson. And we became a more strategic grant maker. And so by about 2009, um, we had completely changed what we were doing and decided to become, uh, in our education work, supporting post-secondary access and success for low-income, first-generation, and underrepresented students, particularly African-American, Latino, Asian-American, Pacific Islander, Native American students, basically students who traditionally have not done well uh, or have not been well-served, I should say, by the higher education system. 
So that's sort of how I ended up in this role. I thought I knew you before this conversation. I knew something about your interest, of course, in South Africa. I did not know that you'd actually done that work. Would you elaborate a little bit on how that, that uh, you know, early history of yours, how has it influenced your work in the United States? Well, you know, I, I went to South Africa uh, partly sort of through life experience and through family experience. Um, my father's an immigrant. Um, he uh, came actually from Japan. His family was part Japanese and uh, part uh, Caucasian. And uh, this idea that race is really is a social construct because uh, your listeners can't see me, but I am not going to be somebody you're going to mistake for an Asian American. Um, and uh, yet I knew that if I had looked like an Asian American, for example, and been living, if my father had been uh, living in the United States, he would have gone to an internment camp um, in World War II. And, and so this idea that race is so fluid really drove me. I also was very interested in the Holocaust and this idea of how um, that was the great moral issue of the late 1930s and 1940s. Um, and I thought, well, what's the great moral issue of our time? And this is the 1980s. And of course, it was uh, apartheid. So I really wanted to see South Africa for myself. So I went to South Africa for a year, studied South African literature and culture. And I remember I met a uh, uh, Black South African activist. And I said, you know, what can we do as Americans to help uh, fight your struggle and support your struggle? And he was very kind, but he gently chided me and said, well, you can fight racism in your own country. And uh, so that sort of made me think about that. And it didn't change my commitment to South Africa and ending apartheid, but it also made me think about, well, what am I doing to help address racism in my own country? And so even though mm -hmm. my own interest in South Africa had come from that perspective, I hadn't really thought about how you would actualize it. Yeah. In some ways, this is not analogous, but I'm reminded when I guess I was about your age, um, a similar thing happened. I was a junior in college getting near graduation, and I got intellectually all engaged in the meaning of justice. And I realized it was the most important line of thinking that I had done in college and that I just had to do something with my life that connected to justice. I didn't know what it was going to be. And the Vietnam War, in my case, came along and prevented my me from doing something immediately. But I found in the Air Force that when they ordered me to do college teaching at night in a community college, that there was a need for justice right there, right in front of me, right here in our country. But Bill, you, you said, that, you know, you were talking about the, the moral issue of a time period. So I, I rarely do this this early in a conversation, but please fast forward to the third decade in the 21st century, what's the great moral issue now? Um, oh, I think there are probably a couple of them right now. And I suppose the one related to this is uh, the increasing social inequities uh, in our society, mm -hmm. um, which in fact has been foreshadowed in South Africa with a very similar history, um, very similar justifications for creating systems that, created that inequality right. i think yeah. the other mm -hmm. I, I think the other one is the other two that i can think of is, is probably this idea of truth and reality 
And uh, mm -hmm. certainly based on what we hear from students who um, are interested in voting, climate change. And so you have these three things mm -hmm. about social justice and uh, you know, this idea of uh, social inequality that's been structurally mm -hmm. uh, reinforced for decades. And then you have this idea of truth or a lack of truth, and then you combine it with uh, climate change. And they're all very interrelated because we're seeing people sort of uh, look at the big issues before us and say that they don't exist or suggest that it was different in the past and that people just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And, you know, these kinds of issues that sort of are defending intergenerational power and privilege and racial power and privilege at mm -hmm. a time when uh, people of a different generation uh, are quite rightly contesting whether that's true and whether the world that they will inherit and they'll live in will be as uh, as full of opportunity as the world that people who may have come of age in the 1960s may have felt. Well, this certainly resonates to exactly where my life ended up founding a social justice organization. In our nonprofit, on our website, we make it very clear that that's our mission. And I got recently word, Bill, from a, a state that they didn't want to work with us because of that. But you know, we're going to keep on in spite of it. Um, anyway, um, so the, these three um, issues that you've just uh, so, you know, um, presciently and cogently uh, presented, they, they I, I can see, but I'd like you to lay out how these connect to your work in sponsoring innovation well, right you know, now in the third decade of the 20th century, 21st yeah, century. It's, it's interesting because I think one of the things actually from our work, we work in the United States and in South Africa and a vice chancellor in South Africa who um, was very committed to social justice and to change and was active in um, the anti-apartheid movement himself as a, a student, as a young academic, you know, he said he was not hostile to student success, but he said when he talks to his, the faculty or the people who are responsible for those activities at his university, he said, I don't know what works. I, everything, when you ask them what, what works, they say everything does. And he said, but I only have limited amounts of money. I, I can't put it into everything. I want to put it into the thing that will make the most difference for the most people the most quickly. And um, and I think that's part of what, you know, the day-to-day -day work we do is uh, when people are seeking grants, they, they obviously burnish what they hope to do and make the case for why they're doing something. Yeah. And what we have to do is assess, but is this really innovative? Is this... Uh, really as effective? Does it promise to be as effective? Is it the best way to right. solve this problem? And some people, um, you know, they're, they're not aware that somebody else has already tried this and maybe more effectively. Um, they, right. you know, so th I think that's critical is trying to figure out, you know, what really works best to help support students. And, and I think, so the truth is actually, interestingly, the, you know, what we're trying to do, what, what works. But what's driving us is this idea of the social inequalities where lots and lots of people are not getting the kind of education they need in order to hope for a middle-class existence in the 21st century. And of course, that's, that's the century they're going to live in, 
right? And which I think for those of us who were born in another century, we know we will not live to see the end of the 21st century, but there are people who are alive today that are very likely to see the 22nd century. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so true. I, I suspect probably nobody in our listening audience here today looks at it that way until they're encouraged by somebody like you to, to look at it that way. So um, what, what it, you've, you've made reference, you brought up something I had hoped we could talk about, which is, uh, you know, if we've got people out there who, we're not, if we do have people who are listening to the series who have ideas about innovation and they want to advance those, and, and you do a lot of listening to people who believe they have innovative ideas. And so talk some more about you know, kind of what you're looking for and how how are you translating those ideas into action? Yeah, I think that when we talk to people, we're looking for someone who has a clear sense of what the challenge and problems are that they're trying to solve and how they've gotten that information. How did they get that? Mm-hmm. Where did they do research? Were there focus groups? Were they listening? I, I think um, what... And then what is their solution and why is this particular solution better than either the status quo or other solutions that are being sort of uh, thrown out? And I'll tell you, one thing that I typically look for is some sense of reality and real numbers. Uh, Obviously, in certain cases, that's not possible because of the nature of the work or the stage of the work. But I think this idea of how many people will benefit from this or how many people have benefited from this, you know, how do you know this is actually effective? Uh, I think that's really critical. Um, the other, and I think the sense that it would broadly support lots of people as opposed to, for example, one institution. Yeah. So are there um, the, the kind of uh, work you are most impressed with these days are there certain patterns to it that you could generalize about certain types of initiatives that you think are making a difference right now in American higher education, therefore that we need more of? And obviously not all of them can be supported by you, but hopefully they will be adopted and replicated by institutions themselves without your support. But what kinds of things are impressing you these days? Yeah, I, I would say uh, the things that are impressing me right now are things that are addressing problems that affect low-income, first-generation, and underrepresented students. And, of course, that's what we do, but, but you know, higher education works pretty well for the upper-middle class, for multi-generationally yeah. um, educated people. It's expensive, but the, there's a clear ROI, and most of the people who come from those backgrounds graduate. They may take a little longer than they used to, um, it certainly will cost more. They're often borrowing more. But it's a system that while changing and dynamic, they're still flourishing in. The, the students yeah. that we care most about are the students for whom this is a first generational attempt to, to get a post-secondary credential and who right. don't have a great deal of money. So they, they really are looking at ROI very carefully. Uh, it's not that people with high school diplomas are generally going to make more money than people with college degrees. It's that can they assemble the package of financial resources and time 
to get a degree in a reasonable amount of time at a reasonable price. And so what, what we're looking at is institutions that do a good job of supporting those kinds of students or practices that look at their lives. So for example, uh, a statistic is more than half of all college graduates these days have attended more than one college. And the bias of our culture has been towards the most selective and most elite institutions. And most of the people who attend those colleges showed up as freshmen and graduated in about four years. And so looking away from those institutions that set the agenda and have the glamour and they're talked about at public radio and in the media, you know, the print media, but to look at where the majority of Americans are, which is at public institutions, uh, community colleges, minority serving institutions, and to see what are the challenges those students face when they get to school. And often it's things like um, how well are they introduced to the world of the academy as a student? It's um, do any of their prior experiences or classes, whether at a, another college or even in high school, do they transfer as credits to help speed up the process of getting a degree and maybe lower the cost? Um, are they, if they're not quite ready for college because of preparation, which is often due to where they grew up, which is often due to um, things like, uh, redlining the 1930s or 40s that are still having an yes, impact so today. Still continues. Yeah. So, you know, how are we supporting those students when they arrive? What kind of um, educational um, uh, support are we providing? Are we, you know, where are we taking the strengths these our, our students are bringing um, and then building upon those strengths? So th- when I'm hearing people talk about the work, I'm, you know, what is it that they're doing that's addressing some of these challenges? And um, maybe it's a challenge that we have never heard of or thought of in a particular way. So, for example, one of the things that's come up in the last, probably about the last five to 10 years, but about the last five years, is a real focus on basic needs of, of the students who are sort of the newer students, not, not the traditional students who come from upper middle class backgrounds or middle class, but more working class and the lower income students is, you know, do they have enough food to eat? Do they have a, a comfortable place to stay and a reliable place to stay? Uh, do they have a, a way to get to school every day? You know, what, what a lot of people who attend the most selective and elite institutions don't quite realize is that many of the students at other institutions were getting free and reduced lunch in June and had a school bus to take them to school. But in September, right. they don't get free and reduced lunch. So they have to find those calories and they don't have um, transit to get to uh, college because they're living at home or there are no dorms on their community college campus. And so often right. th- 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 there, there are problems that these institutions don't even see because their perception of who their students are or what, who they were when they were that age and what their challenges were are not reflected by the people they're currently serving. So this growth of basic needs, how do you do this? Now, the challenge with the basic needs is we're often asking the institutions with the fewest resources, like community colleges, to do even more supplementing to support students with food banks or with you know various supports that might be provided. And you know, the what we we've found over time is that community colleges are not always that good at running nonprofit food banks and that maybe a better solution is to have a partnership with a food bank 
that can step in and knows how to maintain the cold chain and do you know proper stocking and seasonal needs and things like that. And they run a branch office on a campus. And that solves the problem of the college doesn't need to figure hire lots of people to figure out how to make this work. The camp, the, the entity that does this work has expertise they can bring to the table. And of course, by locating it on a campus, it's easier for a student who may be taking long bus rides or subway rides um, or has an unreliable car to not have to drive all over town to, to get things done. They can get they can get some food support on campus. But this look at um, these basic needs has been a really critical thing that's come up in the last couple of years. And it, it extends, as I said, to things like transit. Um, in, Detroit, for, in Detroit, for example, um, there was an adaptation of uh, CUNY's ASAP program, which is a, a, a wonderful program that provides wraparound services. Yeah, I know. What it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And advising. Mm-hmm. And the, the ASAP program... Um, when they surveyed the students in Detroit, they said the number one challenge or barrier to their success was actually transit. Um, it yeah. was not that they didn't have enough money or they didn't have food or they didn't, they, they didn't feel well, sufficiently well prepared. It was actually that yeah. they couldn't get to class. And, and ASAP gave students uh, subway coupons as our tokens, as I remember. That's exactly it. Of course, in a city like Detroit where there's no subway, um, and there's yeah. uh, there's not a, uh, a suburban and a city bus line. You can imagine how difficult it is for students in this particular community. But it's in, in many ways, Detroit is more emblematic of of a, the average American city from in the terms of uh, transit than New York City is. Mm-hmm. And I, I know, of course, that you've done a great deal of investment understate the matter the foundation has in the, in the state of Michigan and in Detroit. What, what um, you see this any differently with the rural areas in America? Yeah, it's, you know, we tend to focus at Kresge on cities um, and we know the Ascendium Foundation works on rural issues, but um, I, I think that you do see differences, but well, what you, you don't see is, a difference is that there is need in rural areas and there is need in urban areas. And the difference, I think, is the concentration of the need is is broader in rural areas. It tends to be, I think, probably a little bit easier to engage in a city because things are probably a little closer together because people are more, the, the land is uh, more densely populated. But the same issue yeah. of, you know, how do I get into college? Also because, also because the residential segregation. You know, the right. people with the greatest needs are squeezed into areas that others, you know, don't want. Right. But I've heard, uh, you know, from our work in Michigan, where we obviously have the city of Detroit, but we have a lot of rural areas, too. One of the challenges is that a lot of people in rural areas don't think that certain college access programs or funding, you know, uh, financial aid programs are available to them. They don't think that they qualify. Uh, and so they they and they're, and they're lacking the same information that people in cities do. So they don't know that they could be doing something that they would, uh, you know, they could go to college that they can afford it because there are programs for students just like them. And I think that's a, that's a huge challenge there. The other challenge in the Midwest and in parts of New England is that demographically, the Midwest is stable or losing population as opposed to, say, the Southwest um, mm-hmm. or the Southeast. Yeah. And and so what's happening is you're seeing enrollments decline at a lot of colleges. 
that has impact and you know potential risks for other students who are attending, because if there are fewer students attending, they might have to close down dorms or reduce programs. It sure. also means that uh, communities may be losing employers and they may be losing um, opportunities to be as, as much of an anchor in their community as they'd like to be. So we've seen, it, it seems as though we're seeing, for example, an increase in the number of colleges that are merging or closing and that uh, some of the public institutions, regional publics are starting to also see uh, their own student enrollment declining. And that has a significant impact because it's not as if we have enough people with college degrees. It's just that many of them can't afford to go or there just aren't as many 18-year-olds as there used to be, which is leading, I think, a lot of people to look at those people who went to college and never finished and see if we can't bring them back. You've been at this work for multiple decades, and what's happening to your personal optimism scale, um, given the, the great moral dilemmas of our times, um, as you progress your own journey through this kind of work? Are you more hopeful that we can uh, change American higher education to be more responsive to these students, that we are doing that? Um, you know, so where where do you see your own uh, outlook on this in that regard? I'm actually feeling pretty optimistic. I mean, I'll tell you one one handicap of working early, early in your career on something like the anti-apartheid movement was, wow, within a couple yeah. of years, they solved that big, that big problem. And, you know, for people who um, weren't around in the early 1990s, uh, South Africa was not inevitably seen as becoming a democracy. It was seen as, in fact, the um, the long march to something that would be quite hor uh, horrifying, eventually a yeah. terrible civil war. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't mean that South Africa doesn't have lots of challenges, doesn't mean that things bad things could happen there. But I think people never, today, they often sort of accept that, you know, they had this great leader, they had this great anti-apartheid movement, and they were successful. So I, I'm pretty optimistic. And there are some certain data points, going back to the truth issue, that give me some confidence. First, when we started doing this work in about 2008, about 38% of all Americans had a post-secondary credential. Today, it's just about 52%. So there's a significant increase in the number of Americans, or percentage of Americans, I should say, that have some kind of post-secondary credential, which means that, that the concerted effort of trying to get more people into college and try to reduce those equity gaps is happening. And in most cases, while the equity gaps are still there, uh, most communities are all seeing their attainment increase over time. And so... The, the basic path is correct. It's about figuring out how to um, uh, improve it even more. That's one thing. Another thing that makes me very confident or hopeful is pre-COVID, I don't know what's happened in the last year in the specific um, data point, but I do know, not anecdotally, but we do know that enrollment has gone down for uh, college. But until 2019, the Transition to college by people who are graduating from high school was at its highest ever. It was ab above 70%. And of course, high school graduation was above, uh, I think, 85, 90%. So you were seeing a greater percentage of people graduating from high school and a greater percentage of those people going on to college. Again, COVID has put a, uh, 
a little bit of a wet blanket on that. But nevertheless, the trend had been very, very effective, which gave me some optimism. I think another thing is that the discussion has moved away from purely the challenges and the virtues of elite higher education and really moved into, um, uh, you know, talking about student success more broadly and what could be done to support it. And I think that's a, a great sort of tone shift. And you've got, you know, a president right now who's uh, called on uh, the country to offer free community college, just as free uh, high school was offered 100 years ago. And I might add that this and is he has a wife teaching in community college. Exactly. And you also don't forget that some of the biggest innovators in this space have been Republicans. So although it's, I think people are trying to turn this into a more partisan thing, um, there is still a, a, a big nonpartisan swath of America, both Republicans and Democrats, who think that the 21st century means you need to have better educated people. And you need to have that education be affordable and easily accessible. And I guess the last thing that gives me hope is just there have been a lot of really good innovations over the last decade. Everything from reforming developmental education, which was the black hole of higher education, to um, building the capacity of institutions so they can uh, flourish more effectively in terms of raising private funds or in uh, reducing costs through um, using uh, electronics, uh, the, the use of big data. Um, I, I, I think the uh, examples of places like Georgia State, which have you know gone from about a 25% graduation rate to about 60%, even though their SATs went down, their um, their student numbers increased and their diversity increased. Uh, that these are all, and by the way, they reduced they removed all equity outcomes differences. These kinds of examples give me a great deal of hope that we could provide more opportunity to Americans and uh, give, get them the college degrees that they need. Do you ever think of yourself as um, trying to, to teach hope uh, in order to motivate people? No. I think so. I try to, you know, I, I try to encourage people and I'll tell you one of the funny things that with Georgia state, there, there are great innovators, uh, including the, the Gardner center, of course, but, and, and in fact, there have been great innovators, great leaders in this space, but I'll tell you this idea that we could significantly improve attainment and remove equity outcomes differences. When Georgia State reported that information, you know, there were probably other places too, but they really, I think, captured the attention and that really helped. So building the hope is that until that moment, at times I felt a little quixotic that we were trying our very best mm -hmm. to, to, yeah. uh, to say this could work. But then when you started to see examples of institutions doing it, and of course, then the, the debate shifted from it can't be done to it can only be done at a few rare places. But I think what we're right. seeing is it's starting to spread to other kinds of institutions. And so, in fact, I'm not sure that that's still the case, that um, you can say, well, Georgia State was yeah, a lightning strike. Yeah, I think it's shifting to the fact that if they can do it, we can do it. You know, I think so. We know what they know. Well, and Absolutely. not only not only that, but you, you get this idea that um, that from the business side, if you're retaining all those students instead of seeing them all drop out after their first, second, or third semester, that means there's revenue for the institution. That means that 
your performance is improved on, on rankings and ratings. Uh, and the institution can be more effective. And in fact, I when I hear about a college with enrollment difficulties, and I hear them say, well, we need to do more recruiting internationally, or we need to um, do better outreach and better advertising. That's where I think an institution isn't really focused on solving its problems. You, you don't give them money, Bill. <laughs> no, not typically. At least in that. <laughs> That's a good litmus test. Um, well, I, I think your um, you know epiphany here about the uh, the power of motivating people to think that alternatives are possible is so important because many of us in the academy we can be very tolerant, Bill, of failure. We just assumed that was inevitable. That was God's will, and who are we to interfere? It's you know it, it can't be fixed, but we know that's not the case, and. Um, and you're, I, you've given us a number of examples of how your thinking as an individual and that of your philanthropy is evolving. And, you know, you're, you're finding new, uh, really what others would call a frontier. I mean, thinking of uh, colleges and universities as social service agencies, which has been anathema to a lot of us in the academy. But we are. You know, we're the last stop on the bus for many of these students, just as I saw I was in the Vietnam era military, and the military played that role then. Mm-hmm. But we've drastically reduced the number of Americans we're bringing into the military and providing them literally with shelter and food and health care. We're not doing that. And, uh, and I, I'm pleased about some of the reasons why we're not doing that. But it certainly suggests a, a, a rethinking of what is the role of higher education. In that line, um, because people listen to you for what they ought to be doing, could be doing do you have could you give us a kind of sneak preview are you thinking of moving into you know venturing into some uh, different way of trying to focus on student success that you haven't yet you're still in the process of developing that you could tease us with yeah um, i think that um there are a couple of areas that we've been funding or rethinking so one of them actually is student voice now, this is critical, and of course, the National uh, Survey of Student Engagement is uh, a critical part of that, and um, we have worked, for example, to export that survey to South Africa, so it's been South African norm and uh, culturally appropriate. Um, so there's mm-hmm. that, but there's also the student voice that comes from engaging students in focus groups on a regular basis to figure out why are they not succeeding in this course. And this is not designed yeah. to hit uh, faculty over the head, but is there a reason why certain things are occurring? And so, uh, again, an example from South Africa is um, we um, had an issue where uh, uh, there was a, a civil engineering course uh, or, or major, and it turns out that the students were all flunking out of the major, not in the civil engineering part, but in the public policy course which was mm-hmm. two, two semesters worth of public policy squeezed into one semester. And the question, of course, that, that uh, raises is, are you trying to graduate people who are in public policy or graduate civil engineers? And does the, so if, if this is where the students are failing, do you need to just figure out what is a semester's worth of public policy exposure you can actually do 
rather than two semesters squeezed into a, an area. And this is where you you basically call your students. Because of course, in a, in a field like engineering, you may call, and especially in South Africa, you call them at that stage. They actually have to start all over again if they're not going to continue. They can't just take those classes and move to something else. And so I think that this idea of, of you know, listening to students, figure out what they want and what they need and why they are succeeding to look at it from an asset perspective and also why they think they right. may not be succeeding uh, is really helpful. And I think that's something that we've been looking at. But in a, re a related area is also student voting. You know, in the last election, students, according to a, the Tufts Center on a Student Voting, uh, student voter engagement, that is in, the students who voted, increased by 14 percentage points. And uh, so they were highly motivated to engage in the last election. We think that's a good way to um, raise student voice. We, we want to hear their it also, it also addresses your primary interest in, or a primary interest of yours, in, in pursuing, pursuing the truth. Um, you know, to vote responsibly, you, you have to learn, hopefully in college, how to sort out information from disinformation. Exactly. And also to, to set the agenda for the needs of, of your generation. Yeah. You know, climate change is, is really important. Affordability is really important. Student debt is really in, uh, important. Why should that be any less of a priority than any number of intergenerational priorities that may be here or there? Yeah. And so I think voting is an area we've worked on. Um, I think uh, degree reclamation uh, because so many students have so many credits from all over, and it's often uh, right. sort of left at the um, at the front door when they enter a college, they have to start all over again. And often very disingenuously, because we all know of stories where an adjunct teaches a course at one institution and teaches it at another institution, but the credit from- he gets credit at one, but not at the other. Exactly. And, and yet it's the same yeah. person, the same syllabus, and yet they can't get and the same accreditor, the same accreditor of legitimizing these courses. Exactly. And so, you know, is is intro to Shakespeare with, I don't know, 10 different plays over a semester. Is it that different at this community college than at this state university or this uh, private institution? Right. I'm not sure. And so we're looking at degree reclamation, transfer. Another thing, too, is you know, that's a word that I don't hear. You, you, I've got to emulate you in this in many bill respects. We don't widely talk about degree reclamation. It's really credit reclamation. But the, the whole concept of reclamation is, is alien to colleges and universities. They don't think of it as that. That's really an epiphany. Yeah, I, th I think so. You know, we were working with the Institute for Higher Education Policy, and they have found working in about 200 different colleges in 23 states that about 10% of the students that they were engaging with and, and sort of ha actually had the degrees already, but hadn't received them. <laughs> so there right, was something right. that wasn't working right in the way the higher education system was working, or there was a trivial barrier, like you didn't check this box right. saying you were ready to graduate this spring. Um, right. and, and so to think that this is preventing people from- There's no means for assessment of prior learning. You know, right. these students have already learned, but we don't know how to assess that. Exactly. And, and the thing is, if they have a BA, they can probably command a higher salary. If they have an associate degree, they can probably command a higher salary. Right. And, and yet Quite, if they two don't and a half have times what they would earn with a high school diploma. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, 
you have done something really repeatedly here that I rarely hear from my fellow American educators. You have drawn on examples in other countries, especially in this case, South Africa, but several examples of things we could learn and profit from uh, in the United States. That's, I, as you know, I'm with another gentleman and co-founders of a, an embryonic group called the Global Forum for Student Success, trying to get Americans to learn more from other countries about, well, especially this notion that student success, which you're investing in, ought to be a human right. And you're reminding us, I think, in this conversation that you have a generation of people, particularly now those on the Supreme Court, who are making values-based decisions that are totally contrary to the needs of younger Americans. And it's it's an extraordinary dichotomy, and it's so short-sighted. Yeah, but you're 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 trying to encourage those of us in the academy to think in terms of the needs of the younger students who are so different from many of us, and that's very hard for us to do. But we can learn how to do this, Bill. And I really see you as a teacher of that, and uh, one who can make us more hopeful if we consider those needs of those that are much younger than us and less traditional than we are. Mm. Yeah. So you're not only uh, a philanthropy professional, you're also an educator and you're a teacher and you have to teach your grantees, right? Bill, they don't know everything, even though they're coming to you with things they think they really are. And they, they are experts on certain things, but, but, uh, you know, as a grantee myself, I need to be taught and motivated by people like you. Well, uh, thank you. We I, never run, we never run out of that need. We never run out of that need. But I think I still learn you know, who a, cares a whole lot. Care <laughs> yeah. Great. If, if um, somebody wanted to follow up with you, how do they communicate with you, Bill? Um, well, they can go to our website, uh, org, and then uh, there mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, they can look at our website and see what our priorities are. Yeah. Um, they can reach out. Yeah. Uh, there's an info line. We also do, there's, uh, of course, Kresge has its own Twitter account, and so does our uh, Kresge Education. So it's Kresge DU, like mm -hmm. Kresge Education. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another way for you to, to sort of hear about what we do. We have a newsletter. Um, yeah. You know, what, we don't typically take unsolicited proposals, um, but we doing we try to get out on the road. Of course, COVID's been problematic that way, but we we try to get out a lot to conferences, to meetings, so that we can meet people where they are and where they're talking about innovation and uh, higher right. education. Yes, uh, Bill, I. I am mindful that uh, the experts in the podcast field say uh, they, they want people like me to do something very difficult, which is be much more succinct than I would normally be and to try to draw things to a much more rapid closure. And I am so engaged in this conversation. I do not want to. <laughs> and uh, I've really been on a roll with you here. And um, I'm, I'm going to try to think of some ways we could continue this. And uh, I want to thank you on behalf of uh, what I know is our appreciative audience. This has been extremely stimulating. And I know there are others who would agree with me on that. So, Bill, thank you very much for what you've said on behalf of the foundation, but especially what you've shared about Bill Moses's experiences and his beliefs and how these and your philosophy are being translated into this, this movement we're both part of for social justice.
Thank you. It's been great talking to you, John. Uh, always so wonderful to hear your thoughts. And you've been very influential in our work as well. Well, I'm trying to have less to say in these podcasts and get, you know, someone remarkable like you drawn on it. That was not hard to do here at all. So thank you so much, Bill. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Bye for now. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us for Office Hours with John Gardner. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Gardner Institute. And we wish to thank our guests and the entire team who make this podcast possible.